Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8. Let's uh, pray as we get started this morning. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. Your word is so rich, so deep. And Lord, it never ceases to amaze us. It never ceases to delight us. It never ceases to challenge us. And its depth is never ending, Lord. And we just pray that as we come to it today, that you would, you would teach us by your word, you would instruct us, but Lord, you would transform us. That as we come to understand your word better, Lord, it would give, a, give us greater confidence in you, in the nature of your covenant-keeping love, your steadfast love and faithfulness. And Lord, that our, our love for you would be ever greater and our service for you would be ever greater, and that you are glorified evermore. Amen. Okay, Hebrews 8. Um, let me just read through uh, the first seven verses, which is what we'll hopefully be covering this morning. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, see, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So what we're dealing with now as we come through, and, and again, just a, a little reminder, if you find some of this section difficult to understand, you're not going to be alone. Hebrews 7 through 9 is really heavy stuff. There's some difficult concepts here. And, uh, and I think really that's why in, in chapter 8 he starts off by saying, now this is the point that we're saying. And I, often, I find that I often do that in sermons. If I'm trying to explain something complicated and I've made like six or seven different observations on a, on, a, on a concept or a couple of verses that's quite difficult, and I can see some of you going, I think I get that, then I'll say, now here's the main point, remember this though, if, if you didn't get all of that, remember this, and here, this is kind of the main thing. And that's essentially what the writer here is doing. So for us to uh, just come into this, it's, it's worth our while, particularly after a, a couple of weeks break um, from Hebrews, if we just remind ourselves of what he's been saying over this last chapter. Um, specifically chapter 7 was dealing with the issue of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, if you remember, was first mentioned at the end of chapter 5. And the, when he says that at the end of chapter 5, he kind of launches in and says, well, you guys, you guys are just basically milk drinkers. You, you, you're on milk and you should be on solid food. And so you're not able to handle 
something as in-depth as Melchizedek. And then he proceeds to tell them anyway, which is why he has to kind of summarize it at the end of chapter 7. So we have this quite difficult chapter in chapter 7 about Melchizedek. And basically the, the main point, points were this, were these rather, that Melchizedek um, is a model for ministry for the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And that's because Jesus, as the chapter explains, couldn't have been a priest under the old covenant system. The old covenant system said priests have to be priests because they have descended from Levi. That's why it's a Levitical system. They've descended from Levi. And so the priests are operating within a specific system that is part of a specific covenant, the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant, and that covenant had a system for the priesthood and for the sacrifices that were made. And the argument that the author of Hebrews is making is how much better we are now in the New Testament, in New Covenant times. And Melchizedek was this character who existed before the Old Covenant, and he was both king and high priest. And he was the king of the town that we think not certain, but we think was uh, Jerusalem, and he was king of that city, he was the ruler there, but he was also the high priest. There wasn't a priestly system set up in law, so he was representing the, uh, the people on behalf of, um, to God, and making sacrifices presumably for them. Um, not under the system that we know from the Old Covenant, but a system that we don't fully understand or know. But because he wasn't under that old covenant system, he didn't have to be descended from someone. He was just able to say, you know, I'm in charge, I'm the king. I think I'll make myself high priest. And there's no, nothing to stop him from doing that. He was perfectly able to do that. I'm in charge, I get to decide who the high priest is. I think I'll be the high priest. Now, there were plenty of people in the Old Testament who felt that they should be able to do the priestly duties as well. And routinely, God would punish them if they did try and do that. And so we have this priesthood system that came through Levitical descent. Jesus, obviously we understand, is our high priest. What chapter 7 tells us, and is so important for us to understand, is that unless the Old Covenant... The law, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic system, unless that has come to an end, then Jesus couldn't be our high priest. He wouldn't qualify. He was from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. So he didn't come from the right line of descent. And so it was necessary for him to be both king and high priest, for him being from the tribe of Judah to be the high priest, that the, the law and the covenant had to come to an end. And that's what chapter 7 was predominantly telling us. And that is why when we come to chapter 8, we'll pick up in chapter 8 now, he says, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And this really is going to be the main thrust of the passage today. And that is really the main thrust of the book of Hebrews, which is this. How much better is the system that we have today? 
How much better is it for us to be New Covenant believers? Now, I don't want to jump ahead to next week's sermon too much, but you, you, you need to understand, I think sometimes we don't realize the significance of what God has done for us. And again, when we talk of the Old and New Testament, I often use the illustration about somebody coming into a movie two-thirds of the way along, you know? If, 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 you know, if you come in one day and your spouse is sitting on the couch watching an, uh, the season finale of their favourite show and tears are streaming down their face and they're saying, you say, what's happened? What's happened? And they're like, this character's died. And there they are, tears streaming down, and you're like, oh, really? I thought, I thought it was something important, you know? And, and it's important to them because they've invested this time and they've, they've been on this journey with this character for however long. And if all you've ever done is watch, you know, five-minute snippets here and there when you happen to wander into the room, you're not going to care that this character's died, but they do. And I think that sometimes as, as New Testament Western, Gentile, 21st century Christians, we come along and we see the blessings that we have in Christ under the new covenant, and we say, yeah, we're kind of in the new covenant, as opposed to the old covenant, and we haven't invested anything into the progression of development of God's blessings to his people. We haven't, we weren't there where for century after century, generation after generation, the people longed for the presence of God in a way that we have. Moses was there and he, he had the presence of God like nobody else. God would come and meet with him face to face. And yet he said, Lord, I need you to show me your glory. And it would be I need to be very disciplined here and not get distracted, but one of the main points of John's prologue is that in Jesus Christ, we have a revelation of God that is greater than Moses had when God answered Moses' prayer and passed him by and he saw the glory of God in a greater way than even he had at that point. But for the majority of Israel, they simply didn't have the presence of God in them in the way that Moses did. He was, he was unique in that. There were these isolated characters. For most of Israel, they were privileged above every other nation because God dwelt in their midst. And that sounds great, in their midst. But if you lived a hundred miles away from Jerusalem, then you would come to Jerusalem on a feast day because that's where God was. And Moses, he, he says to the Lord, you know, I wish, I wish that others could share this burden with me, that others would be able to, to prophesy as I do. Others would be able to have the spirit as I do. And so God pour, uh, puts his spirit upon the 70 elders and they're able to prophesy too. And, and one, uh, a couple of those guys are left in the camp and they're prophesying. The people say, Moses, Moses, these guys are doing your job. This is a terrible thing. And Moses says, oh no, it's not terrible. He says, oh, that everybody could do this. Oh, that everybody had the Spirit of God. And what he longed for, Joel prophesied. And Joel said, in the last days, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. It won't just be the Moseses, the, the, the Davids. It won't just be these great isolated leaders. But he says, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh, even on your servant girls. 
And that prophecy, while it hasn't fully come to pass, as we'll talk more about next time, is something that, that we are experiencing as believers today. We are new covenant believers who have blessings that people have longed for for thousands of years. Since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, we are in the most privileged position that the followers of God have ever been in. We don't have to go to uh, the temple to come to the presence of God. We come here today as a community to gather together as a church to, to, to hear the word, to, to worship together, to, to minister to one another. But we haven't come into the presence of God. When you woke up in the morning and you were lacking in caffeine and didn't have enough sleep and were feeling a little bit grumpy and maybe kids had woken you up during the night or you, you had some ache and pain and you didn't sleep well, you were in the presence of God that moment that your eyes opened as much as you are now. And the glorious thing is, even when you weren't conscious and you were asleep, you were in the presence of God. Do you know how much Israel longed for what we have today? We have something so much better. I've gotten distracted. Let me get back to the text. But th this is the point. He's saying it. How good is it what we have? He says, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Listen. Our high priest is not a high priest who goes into the temple on the day of the Holy of, uh, into the Holy Holies on the Day of Atonement, that he goes into the temple and operates on our behalf in the presence of God on earth. Rather, our high priest is at the right hand of the Father, that he is there seated at his right hand in heaven. He's not going to a place where God, who God, God's dwelling place is heaven, right? And yet God has his presence, had, his, had, past tense, his presence in this small, specific place on earth. The, the holy of holies in the temple of, tabernacle of a temple. Right in that small place, God, heaven came to earth. God came to be with his people. Now, our high priest doesn't walk into that little extension. Rather, our high priest is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And that seated at the right hand of the Father speaks, and we lose a lot of this in not understanding the context of it today, but it speaks of equality. This is not a man having to, to do ceremonial washing and sacrifice to cleanse himself from his sin so that on one day of the year he can come into the presence of God, he and he alone. But rather this is the sinless one who is himself God, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in a place of equality and he represents us. That is so much better and so much greater. And he is therefore, verse 2, a, uh, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now we're going to talk about this a little bit in a minute, and a lot more when we come to chapter 9. But he's making a reference here to the fact that there is a true tent. Now, if you're thinking about camping in heaven, you've not got the right idea. The tent here is a reference to the tabernacle, like the temple, the dwelling place of God. 
And while we had the tabernacle on earth, and then we had the temple on earth, and then in the Gospels, as you recall, Jesus talks about himself as being the temple, and now that he has gone to heaven, we are temples, that's how it's kind of developed, but that temple that was on earth, that tabernacle that, wa that was on earth, that holy of holies, was in, in one sense not the true one. Now God asked for it to be built, God said how it was to be built, but the implication here is that in heaven there is a true tent, a true tabernacle, that God hasn't said to man, I want you to make a tabernacle and I want you to do it this way, but rather he's made it himself. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So that's where Christ is, that's his location, on the seat in the true tent in heaven. And that makes him a far superior high priest. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So there he is in heaven, and we're told that there in heaven, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, there is a true tent, a true tabernacle, okay? I'm going to talk about that in a minute. I know this is a, a complex and heavy thing, but we'll talk about that more in a minute. But for now, just understand that the tabernacle system, the altar, the sacrificing, all of that, that there is a, a tabernacle of sorts in heaven. And now, what happened in the tabernacle on earth? Well, at the tabernacle earth in, on earth, in the Holy of Holies, the high priest will go in and make sacrifices. And so, in the same way, what he's saying here is that every priest has to offer these gifts and sacrifices. And so, when the high priest on earth will go into the tabernacle, there will be sacrifices that will be made there in the Holy of Holies. And now here, he's saying, it's necessary for this high priest, Jesus, in heaven to offer a gift as well. Now, this is what we call a teaser trailer. This is, this is, uh, and do you know what I'm noticing? The writer of Hebrews is doing this a lot. Chapter five, it's kind of like Melchizedek. And then he goes off, and then by chapter seven, we start to have a bit of Melchizedek. You know, he kind of gives us the little things and he develops on. So in chapter seven, at the end of chapter seven, he starts talking about the new covenant. We're not going to get to the new covenant properly until next week. And so here, he's now talking about Jesus, the high priest, and the sacrifice that he offers in the tabernacle. Now, if you've been coming to Hebrews regularly, you'll notice that we've spoken a lot about Jesus as the high priest, but what the writer here hasn't dealt with a lot yet is the sacrifice that he as high priest makes. That's coming. So this is your little teaser. He's saying he's there in heaven, the greater tabernacle, the true tent, the greater tent, that's where he is, this great high priest, and because there's an offering to be made there, and being, that being the better location, the sacrifice is going to be a better sacrifice. But he's going to come and talk about that sacrifice really from midway through chapter 9. So we've got a little way to go until we get to that. But he's just building layer upon layer, telling us about the superiority of Jesus as high priest. So there will be offerings and gifts and sacrifices made 
on the altar in the true tent. Um, and that's verse 3. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according uh, to the law. And that's really a summary of what we were seeing in chapter 7. That if Jesus was high priest on earth, he couldn't be high priest. You couldn't have Jesus being high priest on earth. On earth, there's a there was a tabernacle and then a temple. And that tabernacle and temple was part of the law and the covenants and part of the priesthood and these things were all linked together. You know, one thing that I find strange in churches today is how so often Christians will, will say, well, the sacrificial system has ended, the Levitical system has ended, but there's bits of the law that we're going to keep. Hebrews 7 did not give us that luxury. And by the way, it's not a luxury, it would be slumming it, it's a step down, that's the whole point. He Hebrews 7 is showing the complete um, intertwining nature of all of these things. In, in other words, when Moses, when God made a covenant with Moses, part of that covenant was the 613 laws that were given over time along with that covenant. So God says, I'm making a covenant with Israel, Moses, and then here's the rules, here's the, how's this covenant done? When, when the covenant comes to an end, the law comes to an end. The sacrificial system, the priesthood, the, the genealogy, you had to be descended from Levi, all of that is part of that system. And what he's adding to the mix here now is the fact that the, the way in which it was done was in the tabernacle and in the temple on earth. You, you, it, it comes as a package, you have it all. You have got this covenant that involves laws and rules, it involves a temple and a tabernacle, it involves the presence of God, it involves the Levitical system, it involves all of those things. You want Jesus to be your high priest, you've got to take the whole lot and you've got to put it aside. And yes, that includes the Ten Commandments. <gasps> Shock horror. Don't worry, nine of them are repeated in the New Covenant. You see, the New Covenant, which we're going to talk about more next time, comes with its own laws as well. To say that the law is done with, to say that the law has come to an end, that it's no longer in effect, doesn't mean that there is no law. The New Covenant comes with law as well. And much of uh, the law of the New Covenant is the same as the law of the Old Covenant. Much of it is different. Some of it is, is greater. In the Old Covenant, you had to love your neighbour as you loved yourself. If you don't love yourself, that's not much of a challenge, really, is it? But in the New Covenant, you have what Jesus commanded us to love one another as he has loved us. That's called stepping up your game, as far as laws go, is it not? So the laws have changed. There's now a different covenant with a different set of laws. And I think as Christians, if we can understand this, it will make things so much more simpler. Old covenant, Old Testament laws, Old Testament system, Old Testament Levitical priesthood, Old Testament tabernacle and temple, done. Now, new covenant, new high priest, new temple, new tabernacle, everything's changed and different. And that's really what he's saying here. If, if, if Jesus was a high priest on earth, he wouldn't be high priest. He has to be 
at the, uh, the tabernacle in heaven. We'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 5. They served, they then is the priests who were operating under the old covenant on earth. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, in other words, put the, build the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Exodus 25, verse 40. You know what we're doing, don't you? Exodus 25, let's go there. He's quoting from the Bible. Let's go and have a look at it. Now, when we come to this portion of Exodus, there is the building of the tabernacle, and it is long, and it is complex, and it is laborious if you are reading through a Bible reading plan, and you're starting to look at the specific necessities of curtains and, and what have you in the tabernacle. And there is significance, I think some people have overread into this, but there is significance to much of this. And in chapter 25, um, we read about the Ark of the Covenant and the, the, uh, the building of the Ark of the Covenant, the building of the mercy seat. We may well come back to Exodus 25 as we consider the heavenly tabernacle uh, in chapter 9. But we, we may not. But th th there is this building of the Ark of the Covenant, the table for the bread, the golden lampstand. And then before he goes on to deal with the, the covering, the, the tabernacle covering in general in chapter 26, he says... Um, in, in uh, verse 40 at the end, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. So it's interesting to me that this verse, in, and the reason we turn to Exodus 25, it's essentially just quoted, it's nothing different here. But the, the interesting thing in context is where it falls. So when you go in, into chapter 26, you start to see things about curtains. Not the curtains that you would necessarily have at home, obviously, but the, the, the covering of the tabernacle and how it's all going to be done. What it's saying is that there is a pattern that is to be followed when you make these things. And they're the things that come before the outward part of the tabernacle per se. And specifically, as I've said, that's the Ark of the Covenant, the table for the bread and the golden lampstand. The mercy seat. So here, the, the, the part of the tabernacle where the sacrifices are made, where the presence of God is, Moses is told to make these things, he's told how to make these things, and then when it comes to an end at the end of chapter 25, he said, make them after the pattern. Now this word pattern is interesting, in that it could be understood a couple of different ways. It could be, it could, in one sense, simply mean, God says, hey, Moses, this is how I want you to make it. And he's told him how to make it. Do it this way, make it like this, and what have you. The specifics. Like, he, like he's a builder's giving a plan, you know. Um, Bruce will know all about this, but you know, here, here's the plan on how to build something. This, go ahead and make it like this. You know, like Noah, uh, God told Noah how to build the ark and what have you. But the word pattern could be understood more, more deeply as well in the sense of, um, we've already made this house this way, 
you know, somebody who's a builder today might say, well, I want you to make a whole row of houses all according to the same pattern. Before I came to Burbank and uh, we moved here to come and uh, serve at this church, before that we lived in Murrieta and Murrieta and Temecula is very much a what they call it in England, a new town. And you'd go in these estates, and you'll have estates like that here as well, I guess, but not so many, where you have like 10 houses and they're pretty much identical. It's like, here's the pattern, go make 10 of them, you know, like cookie cutter fashion, you know, and you get, you get like estates of houses like that. So the word pattern here could be understood to mean that this has already been done. And when you see this verse quoted in Hebrews 8, it's very clear that the writer of Hebrews understands it that way. Because he said here in verse 5, um, he said, they serve a copy and a shadow. A copy and a shadow. In other words, when God gave Moses the instructions to build the tabernacle, not the 20, chapter 26 and onwards bit, not the curtains bit, but the, the place of sacrifice, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the golden lampstands. When Moses was told, build this, the understanding being implied here is that he was shown not just a plan to build something for the first time, but he was told to make a copy of something that already existed that this tabernacle on earth, or at least this part of it, was a shadow of something greater that already existed in heaven. That to me is fascinating. In other words, when God says, we, under this covenant agreement that I am making with Israel, we are going to have a sacrificial system with a, with a priesthood that, that descends from Aaron from the, in the line of Levi, we're going to have this sacrificial system set up to deal with the sins of Israel, that it was already modelled on an existing tabernacle setup that was in heaven because God knew when he made that old covenant that it wasn't going to be sufficient to deal with the sins of his people for all time and that ultimately the blood of the Son would have to be poured on the tabernacle in heaven for there to be true forgiveness for sins. The whole of the old covenant system from day one was a shadow of what was to come. It was a, a, it was a preview. It was a picture of something greater that was already in place. When you get one of those TV shows where the development happens season after season and everything is carefully planned to all be unraveled. I say, oh, I didn't see this in season one. Now it's all becoming clear. You know, it's like God had this plan from the beginning and it all unravels. And we, folks, we are people who are benefiting from the greatest part of this whole process. We're new covenant believers whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered not by the blood of bulls on an earthly altar in a tabernacle on earth, but are forgiven because of the blood of the Son of God, Christ himself, God incarnate, poured upon the altar in heaven. We are so richly blessed. And so... Verse 5 again, if we turn back to Hebrews, me trying to find verse 5, looking at Exodus, I'm not going to find it there, am I? 
Verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So they were doing their system and going through this whole process and they were doing it and it was simply a copy and a shadow of something greater that existed already in heaven. When Moses was about to erect the tent, build that tabernacle, he was instructed by God, make it according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. I think, as I say, that's the significance of it being at the end of chapter 25. That chapter 25 contains the things that existed in heaven. Chapter 26 and following are the parts of a tabernacle that didn't exist in heaven. That's what he's saying, I believe, there. But, verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. In other words, the ministry that Christ has now, him being our high priest, that's the context of this, that is so much more excellent. It is, not only is him being high priest better, but the covenant is just as much better. As, as excellent as his high priesthood is, so the covenant is that excellent. And the promises that come with it are that much more excellent too. And, and you understand this in the context of Hebrews, is he's talking to people who are tempted to go back to the temple worship and what have you, still believing in Jesus and still believing that Jesus is Messiah and that they're saved because of their faith in Jesus. And he's like, you don't get it. You, you, Jesus is your high priest. You don't need these other priests. And he's, his ministry is so much greater and in the same way, the covenant you have now is so much greater. And the promises that you have are that much greater. So why do you want to go to old covenant? Why do you want to go to lesser promises? I've told this story a few times. I'll probably tell it a hundred more before I'm done in ministry. But it just blew me away because I was teaching through Ephesians at this church. We'd just done Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, how we're blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. And that God has blessed us with all of these things. And, and, and a guy I knew who's a pastor, he posted up on social media that week a quotation from Deuteronomy saying, if you keep my laws, I'm going to bless you. But if you don't keep my laws, you're going to be punished. That's old covenant. That's Old Covenant. We don't have a covenant that says, hey, you live a certain way and I'll give you blessings. We have a covenant where God says, I'm going to bless you in everything. The Father chose you before the foundation of time. The Son shed his blood for you that you might be redeemed. And the Spirit has come and opened your eyes so that you can believe the word that you've heard and that all of this can be applied to you in the point of salvation. And then that Spirit empowers you, the same power that raised Christ from the dead empowers you that you might then go and live a holy life. I'm going to bless you so that you can be holy, not be holy and then I'll bless you. That's the difference between old and new covenant. And I was shocked that someone who is a pastor is, is using the old covenant to berate his sheep. You behave right or God's going to punish you. Now, I mean, there's, there's warnings. We saw Hebrews 6 and the warning passage there. You don't get to have a groundhog day. You don't get to turn 
clock back. You, you commit sin and there's consequences of that sin. Don't be foolish and don't sin, of course. But at the same point, the whole basis of a new covenant is that God has so richly blessed us. Why would these people... Jewish believers in the first century, they're the first generation of Jews to be able to live under the new covenant which had been promised for generation after generation after generation before them. The whole of Israel were waiting for the time when their old covenant would be replaced by a better new covenant. And not only is it better, but it's so much better than they realised. You, you upgrade not only your covenant, but when you upgrade your covenant, you upgrade your tabernacle. You go from earthly tabernacle to heavenly tabernacle. You go from sacrifice of animals to sacrifice of the sun. You go from an earthly high priest to, to Jesus as your high priest. Everything is greater and better. Why would you go back? That's the point that he's making in verse 6. He says, look, and then in verse 7, for if the first covenant was faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. If the, if the old covenant was what we needed, then there's no need for a new covenant. You just have a covenant, and that covenant goes on forever. But it, it was always a shadow. It was always a copy. It was never the end game, the end goal. There was always going to be a new covenant. So, first-generation Jewish believers, you're getting what your nation has wanted for centuries and you're going back to the old. How crazy is that? I mean, we wouldn't do anything that stupid, would we? Gosh, no. And yet, church after church across the land today, people walk into church and they say, come Holy Spirit, we welcome you. They come in and they say, we come into your presence, O Lord, in worship. No, you don't. That's old covenant. That's what happened to them. They lived hundreds of miles away from the presence of God. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm off the top of my head here. I probably shouldn't say this, but I imagine it was a lot like real estate today in that, you know, you wanted to live in Jerusalem. It was going to be a lot more expensive than living further afield, you know, but the, the, which, which is great. But on the feast days, you've got a long way to go because you're not anywhere near the presence of God. Bitter is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Well, that was a very true song for, and a psalm for those people because for thousands of days, they were outside the courts. That's where they lived. They lived outside in a way. And then they came to the temple to worship on those few days. And as they came, they were coming close to where God was. Do you know that sense of excitement that they had? That I'm trying to express here? That we're coming to the presence of God. We can meet with God. We can, we can hear from God. We can, we, can, we can have our sins dealt with. We can be taught. You know, do you know where that is today? That's you! People get to go to you! you well, I don't get to forgive their sins. Yes, you do! You get to tell them that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins in their place. You get to tell them that they're a sinner who needs that sin forgiven. And that Christ alone can bring about that forgiveness. You have, in the gospel message that you have trusted in, the, you have the ability to tell people that. And for them, in belief, if God enables them to believe it, they're going to be saved and their sins are going to be forgiven. 
And if they place their trust in that, you can say, your sins are forgiven. If, if, if you believe this, your sins are forgiven. And if they say, don't you give me that religious mumbo-jumbo, I believe in God, but not that kind of God, or I, I've got no time for God, then you can say your sins are not forgiven. You are the temple. We are temples of God. So why is it that we as Christians come up with this absolute nonsense? We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Well, first of all, you don't get to invite him in. He invited himself in. And he came when he wanted, and he hasn't left yet, and he's not going to leave. So there's no, to, to, to say, oh, we welcome you, is a complete misunderstanding of what it means to be a new covenant believer. And quite frankly, is insulting. Because you're not sovereign, and you're not in charge, and you don't decide when he turns up. And the fact that he has turned up, and he is here, and you don't even recognize it, is an even greater problem. So we've got to get away from this old covenant mentality and recognize that what we have is so much greater. Some churches will say, oh, well, of course, you know, Christians all have the Holy Spirit, but we really have the Holy Spirit. Like, you know, we're, we're the Holy Spirit church, you know. You, you've got to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do you know what? What they're basically saying is, hey, you new covenant believers, come back to the old covenant. It's so much better. No, it's not. No, no, I don't want to go back to a system where a few people were better than other people because they had the Spirit and other people didn't have the Spirit. That's the whole thing that we've come away from. And you know what? That lie, because that's what it is, it's a lie, that lie prevents the average Christian from recognizing that when they have a headache, or they're weak, or they're in bed sick, or, or, or they're struggling with their own sins, or they've stumbled into sin again, or they've got difficulty or crisis or problems in their life, that they are still empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, and that everything they need to live a holy life, God, life, God has given to them at that point in time. That's New Covenant Christianity, folks. And one of the greatest lies of the enemy is to say, you don't have the power to change. You don't have the power to overcome sin. You need to go and have some experience and have some event, like they did in Old Testament times, like they did through the Gospels. No, you don't, because now we're under the New Covenant. This is what we've been waiting for. And if you are a servant girl, relatively speaking, in the whole spectrum of Christianity, then you are still one who's had the Spirit poured out upon you. You are still one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 1, that Holy Spirit is a guarantee that God has chosen you and that he is going to complete his work in you. And then when you go from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 2, you understand that you being chosen and given the Holy Spirit was because even though you are not saved by works so that no man should boast, you were saved for works that you should walk in them. Why would we want to be old covenant believers again? Not that we were, but you get my point. Why would we want to go to something so much less with the haves and the have-nots? That's why Paul says that the giving of the Holy Spirit is the basis of Christian unity. Isn't it ironic that the modern church has made the giving of the Holy Spirit to be the thing that divides the church more than any other doctrine? And yet Paul says that this is the very doctrine that unites us because you know what? We all have the same Holy Spirit. And I don't care what your 
failure rate is on sin, how much you struggle with stuff, how young you are as a Christian, what disabilities or, 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 or problems you bring with you to the Christian life. You have the Holy Spirit just as much as I or anybody else does. And God has chosen you for a purpose and you're of much of value as any other Christian because there are no haves and have-nots. There are simply haves. We are all believers empowered by God's Holy Spirit in different ways so that we rely upon one another because it's, there's no solo shows here, folks. We are ministering one to another. I need you, you need me. We all need each other. That's why nobody gets all the gifts. But we are people of the new covenant it's better covenant it's got a better high priest it's got better promises and we should not go back to old covenant systems so next time we will be back in verse 8 and if you look at your bibles now just ahead of time you'll see um, most bibles will have it indented to show you but the vast majority of it is simply a quotation from Ze jeremiah we're going to be talking about the Old Covenant, shifting to the New Covenant. I'm going to try and help you understand a bit more about what it means to be under the New Covenant. We're going to try and resolve a few issues that we'll be looking at this promise um, next time. But I simply want you to understand this, folks. You are not Old Covenant believers. You're New Covenant believers. It's a better thing. And under the New Covenant, the key distinctions are we all have the Holy Spirit and we are temples of God. Every one of us. And I hope and I pray and I, I know I, I've preached this point so many times from this pulpit. And I, and I just hope that people get it. I hope that people who haven't got it thus far get it today. And I pray that I get chances to preach it again and again. But you have been saved for a purpose. God has empowered you for a purpose. Your ministry is as valuable as my ministry and anybody else's ministry. You've got to just give yourself to God. Oh, I should have written it down. What's that line from All I Have is Christ? My ransom life. If Jen can't remember it, I won't. But, you know, I, my, I give my ransom life to you to do, with, to do with whatever you wish. Paraphrasing the line. But, you know, just whatever you wish, Lord. Whatever you want from me. Whatever you've called me to. Here I am. You see, the problem here is not that you're not special. It's not that you're not empowered. It's not that God hasn't got great things for you. The problem here is, have we made ourselves available? Have we recognised our worthlessness in and of ourselves? The redemption that we have in Christ, and now the purpose that we have, and said, like Isaiah, plug for tonight, here I am, send me. Let's go out and serve God, recipients of a new and greater covenant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unbelievably rich blessings that we have in you. that we live in a time where we're not under the copy, the shadow, 
the earthly system, the high priesthood coming through Levitical descent, that we're not living at a time of animal sacrifices, that we're not living at a time where we're obliged to keep rigorous laws with no empowerment to actually keep them. That we're not part of a system that's whole purpose is to show us our sin and our worthlessness, but rather that you have given us value and worth by choosing us, by saving us by the blood of your Son, by opening our eyes by your Holy Spirit. That we have a better high priest, a better tabernacle, and a better sacrifice, that our sins are forgiven for all time, and that your Holy Spirit empowers us to keep the laws and the rules that you give to us. Lord, may we learn to walk as New Testament believers. Learn to walk in the power of your Spirit. And may we bring glory to your glorious name. Amen.